Welcome to the Modern Masculinity Podcast, where we delve into the depths of what it means to be a man in today's world, and we explore the real-life challenges and triumphs that you and I face every single day. My name is Hector Santi Esteban, and I come with no answers, only questions for some of the most wise, insightful, and grounded men that I know. So get settled in. You're listening to Modern Masculinity. Fellas, what's going on? I hope this episode finds you well. And as always, I, I hope this episode leaves you better than when it found you. And I'm honored and humbled that you're here. I'm grateful that you would let me be a part of your journey. And I'm excited to introduce you to our guest today. His name is Jerry Dugan, and he is uh, someone who I've met through the podcasting space, someone who I've got a chance to hang out with in person, and someone who I just admire and respect for who he is as a guy. Because what I really love about Jerry is that he's someone who has really done the work to sink into himself. And he's been able to create a, an amazing family that that follows his leadership. And I think that's probably something we get into today is how he's been able to forge that. And his whole thing is going beyond the rut. And I know that I have found myself in a rut. And to get out of that has been its own journey, right? It's been its own, its own thing. But what's nice is that, you know, even if you think about what a rut is, when you get out of that groove, the possibilities and the opportunities are so much more. And that's really, hopefully the outcome of today is that you're able to get to a place where you can see the possibilities and see the opportunities that stand and lie above the rut that you're in. So excited that you're here, excited that you're going to be with us today. Let's get into today's episode with Jerry Dugan. Jerry, welcome to the Modern Masculinity Podcast. It's great to have you here, my man. Glad to be here and good to see you again. It's been a while. Time flies, but you're in the middle of it. It seems crazy. And then you step back and you're like, wow, already that time has passed, especially with life. It just seems to get a little more compressed. And with the world yes. the way that it is, it doesn't seem like it's slowing down anytime soon. What's real for you as a man, a husband? Take us into your world. Olivia and I, we celebrated our 22nd anniversary back in November of 2023. And now it's 22 years and one month as of when we're recording this. Thank you. And I'm like, yes, she hasn't fired me yet. We've got two kids, a son and a daughter, and they're both grown up. Our son is 22. Our daughter's 20. So Liv, myself, we're empty nesters. And we're like borderline crazy cat people now because around the same time that our daughter had left for college, the family cat had passed away. And we filled that void by getting two cats, like two little kittens, baby kittens. And we said, we're never getting cats again because it just breaks our heart. But then we adopted these two kittens. They're twins. We still have them now. And then my daughter wanted to take a cat to school with her. So she adopted a kitten. But by the time we sent Emma off to college, the three kittens had bonded together and no one had the heart to split them apart. And they're together. They're a family now. Liv and I, we now have three cats. They're now two and a half years old. My daughter since adopted two more cats of her own. So now you can take your cat because we've got our cats. And before I got on here to record with you, I kid you not, my little Bailey girl. So I used to call my daughter baby girl princess. Now of the three cats we've got, one is a girl. She follows me everywhere. She is my daughter in cat form in a lot of the mannerisms. She was taking a nap, had her pop 
paws over her face. I'm like, oh, she's so cute. Busted out my phone and took a photo and I sent it to the family. I'm like, how adorable she is. And I'm sure my kids are like rolling their eyes. Not my wife. She's like, oh yeah, she's cute. Now go get me pictures of the other two cats. And so that is us at home. Some of you probably stopped listening. I'm so sorry, Hector. I didn't mean to ruin the show. Well, Jerry, that all sounds great, but all the listeners are sitting there thinking, what the fuck, Jerry? All this sounds amazing. The reason I say that is that a lot of times we see social media and we see these worlds that are painted to be so pristine. And it says it on your shirt, it's beyond the rut. And I think part of the issue is that so many of us are in a rut, but we're not either willing to accept it or admit it, or we'd never say it. We're supposed to be positive or... Like I remember in my first sales job, being a a manager and a leader, you got to always be positive. Don't be negative. But sometimes you are sad or you are negative. You are in a rut. I'm curious for you being the beyond the rut guy, do you find yourself still in ruts or was there a moment recently where you still find yourself working through stuff like that? Heck yeah. In fact, a year ago from us recording this, the show had been around for seven years. And so I'm the guy beyond the rut. I'm the host of the show. And let's share these stories about people who felt that way and got out of it. And here's their practical advice. And I kid you not, I went to podcast movement in Dallas at the end of August. A week later, I'm putting in my resignation at my job. Didn't plan that. That wasn't in the cards. What was going to happen in two to three years anyway. But some things came to a head and nothing that I did, but it was stuff that was going to impact me. It was impacting the team I was leading. And I'm spending like all of Labor Day weekend wondering, what am I going to do about this? And my wife, who's Miss, don't leave your job until you have another one. What are we going to do for money? That person in my life, she just looked at me and she said, Jerry, just go ahead and quit your job. And that took me by surprise. I wasn't expecting her of all people to say something like that. I felt all this internal pressure, like I've got to provide for my family. It's just my wife and I and our three cats, but I got to provide. I can't just quit this job. It's going to be a career killer if I just quit. But here's my wife saying, just quit the job. It'll be fine. And I looked at her and I asked, why are you saying this? And she said, I want my husband back. It was purely that I want my husband back. And for her to say that beyond the rut has always been about defining what success looks like in the five F's of your life. So your faith walk, whether you're religious or not, the faith part is what's that thing that's bigger than you where you hope to make the world a better place. The next F is family, those family relationships. The next one's your fitness, both physical and mental. The next one is finances. How are you doing with your finances? Are you managing the money well? Do you have enough coming in? Do you have a healthy relationship with money? And you notice it's not at the top of the list of the five Fs. It's here to support the others. And then where are you going in the future? So future possibilities. So those are the five Fs. And when my wife said to me she wanted her husband back, it was all kinds of red flags going off because I thought we're doing fine. My wife and I love each other. and We were about to celebrate at that time our 21st anniversary. We got two kids into adulthood. They didn't do any jail time so far. And they're pretty sad sound adults better than I was when I was their age. And so I'm thinking, where's my wife thinking that I'm not here? And so I asked her to elaborate on that. She shared with me how for the past year, when our kids have come to visit, they're both on their own, but like our son came to visit and at the end of his visit, he turned to my wife when I wasn't around and said, hey, are you and dad okay? And that surprised my wife when that happened. And she said, yeah, he's just stressed at work. He's got a big project and his boss is a bit of a pill to swallow, but yeah, we're fine. Why? And he said, he just seems snippy and short. And if you ever need a place to stay, you can always come to us. And and that blew me away. Oh, wow. One, how cool is that my son is like giving a lifeline to my wife? But two, oh my gosh, my son thinks my wife needs a lifeline from me. 
that's horrible. And then a few months later, my daughter comes to visit. We had a great time. And then my daughter goes home. And then after she's home, she calls my wife and says the same thing. Like, hey, are you and dad okay? And my wife gave the same story. And my daughter said the same thing. Now, my daughter was in a single room on a college campus. And she even offered, hey, if you need to, you can always come down to Corpus Christi. We were in Dallas. You can stay in my room if there's no room at Jacobs. And my wife, wow, like what's going on that you guys think that dad's not okay? And then when this weekend happened, a couple more months later, that's when it all hit for my wife. Oh, this is really tearing my husband apart. I want my husband back. I want the happy guy who's got a vision for the future, who's helping other people, living out his dream. And whatever we've gotten into professionally here, it's taking him away from that. And it was just a big eye opener for me. And when she shared that with me, shared what our kids had said, I was like, okay, this is an easy no-brainer decision for me. I'm quitting my job first thing on holiday weekend, so Tuesday morning. And I had the email ready to go. I had my letter of resignation ready. I had my plan of action ready to go. And it was like, there's no going back. I will not lose my family because of a job. I don't care what the job title is. And all that, though, was already mapped. So I knew what I valued in alignment with those five Fs. And here's a moment in my life where I'm not living up to that. And because I already knew this stuff, though, it was easy. Boom, give up the job. We'll figure out what's next. That was a year ago. Yeah. Wow. I don't know what the words are. Congratulations amidst others. That doesn't quite warrant it, but really on taking the leap and making a decision that is obviously challenging. And it reminds me, I have someone on my team last week. She sent me a a rather long voice message. It feels so good to feel like we've got you back. I've been obviously dealing with some personal things and challenges that are... What's interesting is that other people seem to notice it before we do. We just think we're dealing with it and we're slogging through it. And we think that we're doing a good job of hiding it or that we're okay. But the people that we interact with, either the ones that know us the most, they seem to sense that something is off. And I think that that's important to A, to have around, but then also to be willing to not be upset by those things. You could have gotten upset at your kids and what are you thinking and how could you say this and how dare you? Like all these sorts of judgments and stuff like that as well. It's refreshing, I guess. I think that was the, the cool thing when we raised our kids. One thing my wife and I agreed on was we definitely want our kids, we were thinking ahead, like our kids were toddlers and we're thinking thinking about what kind of relationship do we want with our kids when they're teenagers? Because what's the typical teenager like with their parents? They don't tell any secrets to them. They don't share that they need help. And they slog through life trying to figure that stuff out on their own. We don't want that. So what do we have to have in place to make sure that they're not closed off? And we we had to be vulnerable. We had to allow them to share their mind without barking at them or biting their head off in a sense. And it was paying off. At least they were able to go to my wife and say, hey, you guys okay? I was a little hurt they didn't come to me, but... Yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) They're like, is dad okay? But but we're concerned about you. He looks upset. I think that it's important to note that you've created a space where it's okay to be not okay. Going back to that job that I had out of high school, it was a sales organization. So they're always trying to keep on the up. It's pretty challenging. So you get caught up in the negative. You can get sucked into that. And I think that is something that I know I've seen. Because when you say, your wife says that you want your husband back, I feel that. I resonate with that because I'm like, man, so much of, of what's gone on in my own life has pulled me away from that spark or pulled me away from that purpose and I've gotten shorter and I've gotten snippier and and so all those sorts of things. But also being okay to be in those moments and to understand that those moments are, I think too many times we judge those moments and then we suppress or ignore the situation that's actually at hand. I don't know how much of it is just the culture of the United States where, I mean, I've got to be tough. We got to be like these 
like superhero types where I'm the strength, I'm the foundation, I protect my family, like a lot of protective elements to what makes our identity what we are. And we think, gosh, but if I'm not those things, then I can't be a man. I'm not a man. And then therefore, I'm not any good to anybody. And we get so caught up in what we think other people think of us as opposed to what do we really need. And I'd seen that a lot growing up. My dad was a really nice guy. He got taken advantage of. But I've seen my uncles, some of them, I guess the word in Latino culture is machismo, but this is an Irish family. So I don't know if I'm allowed to use that or not. But anyway, but tough guy, the way they spoke about women, it, it was no wonder why women didn't stick around in their lives. Their partners didn't stick around in their lives. And because they had to be the tough guy, the relationship with their own kids wasn't there. And I just remember seeing my cousins, looking at my uncles and how they're acting and thinking, gosh, that sucks. And what if what we're trying to hold on to this illusion isn't the thing that works anyway? And what would be the better way to go? And what if the strength was really the ability to, to show I'm human, that dad's been around a little bit longer than you kids, but I still make mistakes too. And what if the better lesson for our kids was dad messed up? This is what I learned. What do y'all think? And let them kind of practice through your mistakes. And I've done that a few times. I did lose my temper. Turns out war veterans should not play shooter games if they haven't dealt with that crap. And when your kids are able to call you out on it and letting them process through that, which helped me process through some stuff too. It kind of sorting yeah. out that illusion versus reality thing is huge. One of the themes that's come up on this show is this programming. And yeah, I grew up in a Mexican-American, but Mexican household was just very machismo. And I had some older cousins that lived with us and I didn't realize how much their interactions and relationships with women impacted my ideals or what I thought was normal or the way that someone should treat or act or whatever it is. And the other challenge that I think for a lot of guys is that I didn't even really associate with that kind of mentality. I pushed away from it so much. And also my mom, she would have killed me first if she found out that I was hanging out on the street and some of these things that, that some of my cousins were, were involved with. So I, I pushed away from it, but didn't realize how insidious the programming had become. And it was really painful experiences that kind of woke me up to that reality. But it was an undoing of that. And now the reason I bring it up a lot is that I don't think that a lot of guys are totally aware of some of that programming that they're carrying into their relationships or their marriage or their family or whatever. It was fine when you were by yourself or on your own or you had a girlfriend or a partner or something like that. But all of a sudden you've got kids and you've got a, a wife, you've got dogs, cats, like you're bringing your own shit into that and you're bringing yeah. all of it. And now they're being forced to interact. And I don't want to say deal with, but they're being forced to interact with all of that either dealt with or undealt trauma. You know, I'm thinking about like, where did I first get that dose of masculinity is? Here's the reality. And listening to you talk, I'm like, you know what? It's going to sound weird. At least for some people, it's going to sound weird. But so in the 1980s, my mom loved a particular musical, Grease with John Travolta. And I watched it all the time because it had cars in it, it had dudes in leather jackets. I'm like, yeah. But then as I was getting older, I'm like, you know what? Danny has a struggle here. I never really thought about it. He thinks Sandy is cute. She's pretty. And he's just head over heels in love with her. But then she he shows up in real life in his world and all of a sudden he's oh I gotta be cool in front of the guys and it, like all the cringy little moments there of him trying to be the cool guy but he's now ruining things with Sandy and I'm like why is he doing that? He's ruining the things with Sandy. And if he just said, hey, so what? I got a girl. You don't deal with it. Like 
that would be the stronger thing to do. But instead, he gives into this peer pressure, which is perceived in a sense. And now he just lucked out. And Sandy, I guess, came out of her shell and all that stuff. But that was just an eye opener for me. Okay, what he really wants is this nice, healthy relationship with Sandy. What he feels he has to do is what these other guys are expecting, which is Danny Lazuko being this womanizer type. And that's not the thing that's going to fulfill him. It's not who he really wants to be. It's not who he is. And I just decided at an early age, screw that. Why am I going to spend my life impressing a bunch of dudes I'm never going to spend the rest of my life with, especially if it impacts my possibility of spending my life with somebody I do want to spend the rest of my life with? And gosh, that was me at 14 years old. Line in the sand. Here we go. I don't care what y'all think about me. And did I get called a lot of names? Yeah. It didn't matter because I knew who I wanted to be by then, or at least I had an idea. I can't tell you how many times I've watched Grease and never picked up on that lesson that should have smacked me in the face along with a bunch of other guys. Because the crazy part is, is that as obvious as that may seem, we've now gone 40 years and nothing has changed. If anything, those differences, that kind of matrix that you're talking about has only accelerated or it's only whatever the word is in large where now I don't know how much you've talked about it with your kids, but like the dating kind of scene and relationships for young people, it's a very weird matrix because what people are thinking that they want and then what they're actually needing or couldn't be further from each other. There's a guy, Dr. Jackson Katz. I don't know if you've seen any of his work, but late 90s, he looks at how masculinity is portrayed in the media and just how that is part of this programming we're talking about. Just the evolution of the gun sizes in movies. Like in the 1940s and 50s, it's this little tiny snub-nosed 38 pistol. And that alone was violent. Oh my gosh, that's horrible. And then you get Dirty Harry in the 1970s and it's the 44 Magnum. And so now it's a bigger gun. And then you get to Terminator in the 80s where the man is the weapon. It's Sylvester Mr. Stallone is Rambo. Like, he is the weapon. It could be a knife. It could be a bow and arrow. It could be an M60. He's the weapon. He's chiseled. And, and you go from John Wayne and Cary Grant to now Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger as the embodiment of masculinity. And it just ratchets down even more. So if you're Asian, martial arts. If you're Latino in the movie, you've got to be a gangster in a gang. And it was just the way people are portrayed, specifically men. It was very interesting. And it gets ratcheted up more and more. And then when you look at the video games, you look at superhero movies, a Reacher, somebody I saw a TikTok just the other day of a guy saying to younger adults and teenagers, hey, you have a dad. He's like in his 40s or 50s. Ask him about Reacher. He's watching Reacher on Amazon. And everybody's like, man, is this guy getting sponsored by Reacher? Poster comes up. But Reacher, have you seen that show at all? I've only seen the kind of the trailers for it. The hyper-masculine, huge guy. You you know, it's interesting. I posted it, actually, it didn't let me post it until today, where I talked about exactly that, the Rambo, the Arnold Schwarzenegger. And then the challenge is, though, is that I came of age in the 90s. And so right on the end of that, right after that kind of Terminator era, and then it switched into Homer Simpson, Mm -hmm. Al Bundy guy. And so we had these hyper-masculine, hyper-aggressive, hyper-violent on that end of the spectrum. And then it swung all the way the other way to hyper passive, no boundaries. It was a a weak kind of imbecile who had a really strong wife. And that was the the MO. And I remember watching these shows all the time and also thinking, damn, this is part of the problem. I look at, I love my dad, but I look at him and he was, I love him to death. He's like an Al Bundy character. Works at home, comes home, kicks his feet up on the couch and he's checked out with his beer until the next morning. Now, granted, he earned that and he did his time and he climbed his ladder. So who am I to judge that? But also, So I saw that and went, oh, that's what 
being a man, a husband, a provider is about. And there was no real model. And so I'm like, I don't necessarily need to do, I'm not going to do that. But then I had no North Star to shoot for. So I'm here in my 30s. I've got two kids, a house, two dogs, and bringing those same programming or whatever programming that I had that I saw into my world, it was bound to be a cataclysm. There was no way it was going to work out. Again, going back to when I was a kid, I would see my grandfather interact with his kids. I already knew how he treated the grandkids. We were always ungrateful for what we had, and we had to respect our parents better is what he did and said a lot. But then I would look at how he interacted with his own kids, and they were timid around him. Like He was definitely the patriarch. And as I got older in my later teenage years, I, I realized this guy never says anything nice about any of his sons, any of his daughters. If you start to make way and start making a name for yourself, start pursuing your thing, he starts to say you're stuck up. You're full of yourself and you need to come down a couple of notches. So like he's actively knocking you off your ladder. And I thought, wow, not cool at all. And so I found myself hanging out with my grandparents and my extended family less and less. But that required, if I'm not going to follow their examples, I need other examples. When I was 11, my brother and I stayed with some foster parents for a little bit and they created like this new template. Here's this dad. He talks things out with his family. And, and there are times you can tell he's frustrated. He could be firm when he had to be, but he was never threatening. He was never demeaning to people. And there was always respect there and everybody respected him back. And I thought he is such the opposite of all the men I've ever known in my family and other than my dad. But my dad was more of a meek kind of person. And I thought, wow, there's something this guy does though that's right. And then I started to notice when I hung out with my friends, they liked being around their family. They loved being around their parents. And I thought, what are they doing? What are the parents doing? Like I started to pay attention to the parents and I'm like, mom and dad, the parents are getting along. They're talking to each other. They're happy to be around each other. They're lifting each other up and now they talk about each other. And then from there, they're raising their family like a united front. There was no, I'm going to pit one parent against the other. The kids knew. You couldn't do that because both parents are going to talk and I'll be in big trouble for trying to work them against each other. They're unified. And so there were some of these lessons I picked up on early on. I didn't know how to refine it until much later, but there's a book I came across in my late 20s, maybe early 30s. It's a Christian book, but it's called Tender Warrior, written by a guy named Stu Weber. So he's a guy who was special forces, became a pastor, but his whole message in his book, Tender Warrior, was that there are times in our lives where we do have to be strong for our families. We got to be protective. But in a crisis moment, what your family also needs is this guy who's a tender person who will listen to his partner and work with his partner to raise this family together. The children don't need somebody who's going to yell at them all the time. The children need somebody who's going to be willing to play. And sometimes that means you play dress up. Sometimes that means hide and seek. That's the tender part. He was really talking about you got to be this whole person. You don't just be a caricature, John Wayne type, or you don't be Homer Simpson or Al Bundy. You're a human and you've got this whole swath of human emotions, human experiences, be all those things. And as the person in your home who people look up to, be the right person at the right time while still be authentically you, but respond. That was the key thing. Respond the way your family needs you to, not to be fake, but truly respond. So you're lifting everybody up. You're allowing them to be themselves. And I was like, man, that is so cool. Wish I'd learned that when I was younger, but see if I could be a better dad now, better husband for working, I think. I think you're doing a great job. And the nice thing about those journeys is that some extremely unfortunate circumstances, those journeys don't really end, though you hear the, you only get 18 summers. Like I have friends who are like, my kid's 24. They're still here. So that journey is something that we get to do every day. I think this idea of range is something that 
has come up a lot. And I think especially important now as things get compressed, as the world gets a little more anxious, as we creep towards the selection cycle and the economies that's going on and all these sorts of macro events that we as individuals are forced to deal with, but we as men are called to deal with it in a healthier of a way. In times past, guys might have resorted to violence or alcoholism or whatever. In, in the same way that those sorts of things during the pandemic, you looked at divorce rates and domestic abuse rates and alcohol and suicide and depression. All these things really ramped up because people weren't equipped to handle that experience, whether it was stress or whatever it was, they weren't able to deal with it. And guys, I think especially women too, but but it seems like they are going out and dealing with these new types of experiences because that's what they want. Women want to be in the workforce. They want to be the breadwinners. They want to be doing these fantastic as they, they should. But guys all of a sudden are having to pick up the slack over here when we're not doing it willingly, but no one's really talking about it. Or it's not like, it's like we're just being thrown the ball over here, but we don't have a glove. Our hands are slippery. No one told us to even look. We're getting smacked in the head with the ball over here because they're throwing it to us. And I think that what you're talking about is this willful waking up to this range that's necessary, that we're called to be bigger and better men. And these times are what's forcing the hand a little bit. And I used to work at a battered women's shelter as a community educator. And that was a fun time because when I walk into the room as the community educator from this battered women's shelter, the audience usually thinks one of three things. Oh, he's an abuser himself. And this is his work furlough was one of them. Another one would be, oh, he was a victim. And this is his passion now. He's helping other people. Or the third one, oh, he's gay. It was unfathomable to the community at large that what if this guy is heteronormative, has been married for at that time, like 15 years and is raising a family. And this is who he is. And he actually believes the stuff he's talking about around healthy relationships. Like it blew my mind that that was abnormal. Now, this is South Texas. And there were times where we would go into schools and talk about healthy relationships in terms of friendships and anti-bullying and being a good bystander for somebody. And I remember talking to a group of seventh graders and one of the guys, one of these seventh grade boys actually said to me, if we were to do the things you're talking about, we wouldn't be men, we'd be girls. And I was like, I just turned to my work partner. I was like, I'm tag, get in here. I got to step over here now. It just blew my mind because we were just talking about being a better listener and being more in tune with what are we feeling when we start to feel angry? Like, where's that coming from? And so real basic, concrete things. And this kid, I know it wasn't him like saying this is the way we've got to be. This was really him reflecting what he's been taught at home that it was so scary to talk about being vulnerable and being in tune with what we feel that it undermined everything he'd been taught about what masculinity was and what it means to be a growing young man. And here's this guy, unbeknownst to him, a combat veteran, a guy who's been through some stuff, talking in a tender way, and he just, he couldn't fathom it at all. And I was like, oh man. And and of course, when I stepped aside, I'm thinking, I hope this kid doesn't wind up in one of our programs because there was also a batterer's intervention program in this organization. And I was like, I hope this kid doesn't wind up as an adult in that program. I hope something happens to him before then to to be that light bulb that comes on and says that maybe there's a better way. And again, range. Be the whole human person. Be the whole man. Not just this caricature of toughness or this caricature of aloofness and comic relief. Be this whole person. Because in there, there's also this guy who knows how to listen to his partner and be a tender, loving partner. A supportive person. And in turn, to receive support from people and to be open. And when you hit a roadblock, to talk it out. Like in the past year, 
this is probably the furthest we've gone in a long while where I'm building a business from scratch, an, an audience from scratch almost. And there were some quick wins and then there's this little bubble in the middle of what, what's happening now. And I remember sharing with my wife, she was the first to broach it, which was, you seem worried, you seem stressed, what's going on? I was like, okay, this is where we are. And I shared with her the finances and the outlook. And she was like, okay, share that with me. Don't know what I can do for you, but share that with me. And so what are our options? I was like, I can start looking in the classified ads. How old am I? The job postings and get a job where we could tap into this reserve. But we also have these other reserves, but I didn't want to tap into them if I could help it. And she was like, but what do you really want to do? What's your dream? And I'm like, okay, are you saying that just because you feel like you got to be the submissive wife? Or are you really saying this? She said, no, I really mean this. It's us. We're in this together. I was like, if we tap into this, it'll buy us this many months. And she goes, now, now go do it before I change my mind. And we got to discuss this more. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Boom. And so we took off and did that. And that kind of vulnerability, I didn't have that four or five years ago or even a year ago when I thought I had to hold on to my job because I got to provide. And just having those little reminders of it's okay to be open and share with your partner like, hey, this is what's going on. This is what I'm going through. This is what I'm thinking. But what are you seeing? And I think a lot of folks, especially men, if we can just get the strength to be that human with our partner, the sky's the limit. The alternative is pretending that we're not stressed, that we're not upset, that we're not angry, and then acting as if they can't notice, as if they don't pick up on things. Even if it's not a, a conscious recognition, subconsciously, that's what she's coming to you and she's saying, hey, your kids are noticing. They're like, something's off. And yes. if we are not willing to accept that, then it's hard to make any changes. I was recently recommended the movie Inside Out. Have you seen it? Yes, yes. It's got bing bong in it. My kids That's, and I, they love it. And I actually, it's one of the movies that I'm like, let's watch that as much as you want. There are some great lessons in there. And one of the ones that emerges is that that it's okay to sit. Bing Bong, is he's this imaginary character for those of you guys who haven't seen it. He's the imaginary friend or whatever. And he's sitting there in sadness. The character is talking to him, comforting him. And Joy, the happy kind of person, is like, why would you be sad? She can't comprehend the value of sadness. And there's this moment where Bing Bong and the sadness character are sitting there and he's like being sad and then that's what he needed to do. He needed yeah. to sit in that sadness in order to process it and move through it. And so many guys are avoiding that moment where they sit and sink. At least for me, I'm like, for me, it's so painful. It's so gripping in the moment that I do anything I can to push it away. I'll get mad. I'll distract. I will do anything to not feel that pit in my chest. But the problem is I don't acknowledge it. Then I'm carrying it around the whole day. It doesn't go away. It gets stickier and stickier. And then I start pissing off all the people around me because they think I'm being an asshole for no reason. I'm just holding on to something that I wasn't able to let go of. Oh, yeah. Huge. A year ago, when I was going through the stresses of work, I brought some of that home and my wife would listen to me complain about some of it. But I never really had that true outlet where I could go and attack the issue head on with the person who needed to hear it because I knew deep down inside that person doesn't want to hear it. That person's going through whatever that person's going through and just bringing any kind of feedback is going to shut that guy down and we're not going to get anywhere. I'm just going to be in his office two to three hours a day, every day, four weeks to hear his side until I just cave and say, fine. There's a lot to be said about going through that process. That's probably why there's a whole like therapy field that is starting to get noticed and how important it is. And I think that there wasn't a whole lot that came out of COVID. But one of the things I think that has been good is that realization that we do need the ability to process our thoughts, our emotions, and have somebody guide us through like, how do I deal with that in a healthy way, especially when I grew up not having any of those examples to follow. And, and so I'm hearing it a little bit more normalized now where men are talking about, yeah, I met with my therapist last week and we talked about this, this and this. 
And I'm like, oh, wow, this guy's comfortable with saying that. That's cool. And then another friend, yeah, I talked to my therapist. And I hear that much more often. And I'm thinking, wow, these guys are much more comfortable. And it's not a sad thing. Like they're not fishing for attention or sympathy. It's just a matter of fact. And to hear that, I'm thinking, yes, that is something needed there. Because the opposite, when you're trying to hold it in, it bottles up, it builds pressure, and then it explodes in all the wrong ways. And before you know it, you've ruined family relationships, you've ruined a job, a career, trust in the community, you name it, and see more and more people normalize this need to process everything from emotions to memories to trauma. It's needed. That is a really good point. That idea of going to therapy has really become mainstream really the last year and a half. And thankfully, because obviously people were struggling and hurting, but this willingness to get into the work, which I think is also becoming more mainstream, especially for guys in the sense that if you were to ask me maybe four years ago, if I had any trauma to unpack or any healing to do, I would have told you, Jerry, what the fuck are you talking about? Such a privileged life. I had some set backs and challenges, but trauma, healing, I don't have a woo. The only healing I did was when I was dumb enough to try and open a wine bottle with a knife and I no longer move my middle finger fully. That's the healing that I thought was necessary. But today, more and more guys are willing to go in and unpack some of that trauma that we didn't think was actually impacting us, which is what I realized that I had. It was like, oh, I remember those experiences, but I didn't realize the impact that those experiences were having on my mindset, on my psyche, on my nervous system. I didn't realize that an experience I had when I was eight, nine, whatever, was still impacting me as a 32-year-old now. There's still that. And I think that more and more guys are waking up to the fact that you don't have to have these huge, abusive, destructive childhoods to have work and healing to do. Yeah, we're all conditioned in some way, shape or form. And I remember, gosh, it probably still happens now. I'm not getting into politics, but getting into a specific thing I've observed as I'm watching people argue politics over the years. And this word triggered. And I've heard at least one side make fun of another. But, oh, look at them. They get triggered. And, and it's like, wow. But you yourself are ignoring the fact that you're triggered by a phrase that this side said. So the whole idea of there are certain things that do trigger us on a very deep level. And sometimes it's attached to something very traumatic. And other times, just something that got conditioned in us. But whatever it is, it's something that just bubbles up. And if we're not aware of it, then boom, it explodes. And it could be something like maybe when you were raised, you were taught there's no such thing as an excuse. And so whenever somebody gave you a reason why something didn't get done, you think back to that childhood without even thinking about it. Like it happens so quickly. And all of a sudden, you're just like, that's lame. Get that done. Blah, 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 blah. And you just have this outburst at somebody. Now, trust has eroded. This could be at work. It could be at home. It could be out and about somewhere. But because of this deep-seated conditioning that the effective range of an excuse is zero meters, the moment you heard anything that sounded remotely an excuse, boom, you had this automatic response. And one weird thing about me is when I walk into a room, I'm thinking in my head, a little dark guys, but combat conditions, the person most likely to get shot is the third person through the door. This is close quarters battle kind of thing. And so one thing my family does without even realizing they do this is that they just stop in a doorway. And I'm usually the third guy and we're all stopped here at the doorway while they all look around. What do we do next? And I'm thinking, we're all going to die. Get out of the doorway. <laughs> and, and I don't blow up and say this to them, but I feel it inside like this angst, like we got to get the F out of this way of this doorway. And so I used to like gently just put my hand on the back of like my son or my daughter or my wife and just guide them gently away from the doorway at least. And then I'd be right behind them or I'd go the other direction, but clear the doorway. And then they finally caught on. They're like, dad, why do you always shove us out of the way of the door? And I'm like, you guys noticed, huh? I'm like, we're going to die. 
die if we keep blocking the doorway. They're like, by who? And I'm like, that's a very good question. And then my wife like picked up on it. She goes, oh, he's been in a war. He's been taught to do certain things. Even though he was a medic, there are things he's learned. So it was just like, they don't just clear a doorway because dad will panic and shove us. But it was just something they noticed. There's just certain things that I've heard and just get mad at. And they understand more because they've dug deeper. They've asked me like, hey, what was that from? What happened there? And I'm like, I don't know. I just felt this. And then this, this, this and happened. And okay, but that's not normal, right? It's not. And this is like late 30s, early 40s now, closer to the early 40s, starting to like piece things together, like with my family. And they're like, yeah, that's not a normal reaction to things. And talking about like mental health and just being normalized to it. I remember all these years never really pursuing like my VA benefits, because if, if you get your VA benefits, you're weak. If you need mental health, you're weak. You just got to have strong intestinal fortitude. Those kinds of things are conditioned into you. But one of my friends who was a veteran, he was like, hey, I got my free state park pass. And I'm like, how'd you get one of those? He goes, disabled veteran. This was my rating. I'm like, really? He goes, yeah, you should get one. I'm like, I'm not hurt. I didn't say the other part. You're weak. I'm not. That thought was there. He goes on to say, Jerry, you've, you've been to places, more places than I have. Like, you've been to Iraq. I was like, yeah, I have. He goes, okay. You weren't like a pencil pusher, were you? I'm like, no, I was actually in combat. Okay, cool. There where they were burning stuff? I'm like, oh, yeah. Okay. Well, you got this exposure. I'm like, oh, well, that sucks. And then he was like, hey, were you here? I'm like, yes, I was. There's this automatic benefit because chances are you have hearing damage. I'm like, like what? I can hear you just fine. I said, yeah, but is the world always ringing to you? I said, yeah. Doesn't it do that for everybody? No. I'm like, what? So there's a thing called tinnitus, apparently, that I've got. But then he started asking some other questions. He's, hey, when you walk into a room, do you ever do anything weird in that room? I'm like, oh, I'm weird. So everything I do in this room is weird. He goes, no, is there something that you do that nobody else does outside the military? I'm like, well, there's this whole thing where I shove my family aside when they're in the doorway too long. He goes, great. When you're in a crowd, how do you behave? Are you always looking for the bad guy? Isn't there always a bad guy? <laughs> and he's like, no, normal people don't look for bad guys in every room they go to. Do you always look for the exits and know which way to evacuate people out if there's danger? I'm like, yeah, but doesn't everybody do that? He goes, yeah, if you survived a school shooting. I'm like, oh my gosh, like all these things are coming up. And I'm like, wait, what? What are you telling me? He goes, you might have PTSD. Have you ever gotten mad for no reason? I'm like, I rage quit video games a lot. That's why I'm not allowed to play video games at home anymore. And he's like, how long has that been going on since I got out of the army? So he's go check it, go to the VA, get screen and I wound up getting a rating and I'm like, oh shoot. But it was just such an eye opener and to be able to share that with my family and for guys who might not know, what does that mean, getting a rating? The Department of Veteran Affairs, you get a rating from 10% up to 100% of the benefits that are available to you. And so for some folks, there's the coveted 100%. If I get that rating, I get 100% of the pay I used to get in the military, of all these other benefits. And then some people, are, there's that stigma. If I get a rating, then I'm a weakling or I depend on the government to take care of me and somebody to help share with me. Like You picked up some things that make it a little bit challenging for you to adjust to civilian life. And so take the assistance. It's there. It's fully funded, or at least for now, it's fully funded. It's there to help you. And I was like, oh, okay, let me just take a look at it. Yeah. And I, I got a rating. I got my free Texas State Park Pass. And I'm like, yeah, that was my motivation. And I was like, you also have help available now. I'm like, yes, there's that too. <laughs> so good to have it there, to have it available. But so many of us have that stigma that we can't get that help. Even for not guys that are not in the military, one of my good buddies and, and mentors talked about how food stamps for him was was pivotal. And there's been times where we've had that support. And I remember thinking like, oh, are we, it's a weird sort of thing. And even taking like babysitter help or even taking all those sorts of things, we as men were programmed to think that we can figure this out on our own. And I don't know if the furthest thing from the truth, but I think that it is at the detriment of a lot of guys to think and have that mentality. 
Because the reality is most people who do have assistance from the government for food stamps, welfare, I think the average time that somebody's on that type of assistance is less than three years. And there's this whole stigma, though, like if you're on food stamps, you're worthless, you don't contribute to society, you're just a bomb. But the reality is, no, two things. One, it's three years or less, usually I think around the year and a half mark. The other thing is the rest of that person's adult life when they're working, they're contributing to those same programs through their taxes. And we also had to get assistance a couple of times in our adult lives. And I felt bad. But at the same time, I was like, wait, but this is what we pay into the system for something like this. It was like insurance in a way. And it's not a whole lot, but it's better than zero. But the reality is, again, different than the illusion. And glad you brought that up. So much of these conversations are really to talk about the things that aren't being talked about and to let guys know that they're probably not as different. Maybe they are special, but their problems aren't as different as they think. And I think that's a big challenge is that we think our problems are so unique. And so we don't want to bother other people or we don't think that anybody gets it or that it's just us that's going through this or feeling this way when that is probably the furthest thing from the truth when all of us are standing around feeling the exact same way, but no one wants to say anything. Yes. I was just thinking about when you were saying this, I was on another show the other day and we were talking about what is it like to live in alignment with your core values, like the things you truly believe in. And in that conversation, I was thinking about this guy I knew from my church. He worked in the oil industry and part of what was expected of him in the role he was in was like high sales, business to business sales. And the expectation from his company was that the expectation from these other companies was that he takes them out, winds them, dines them, takes them to strip clubs, they party, and then that's it. Then they renew the contract the next day and you've done your job. But this guy, he's a churchgoer and he's married, he's got kids and he's learning these things like you've got to respect your wife, you got to respect your kids, you got to stay away from these types of things. And besides, even before all that, I never really liked going to the strip clubs. And why is it I'm expected to do this? And they talked about it with some friends from the church. And they said, well, just tell them up front. Hey, let's go out for dinner. Unfortunately, I think the original itinerary was we go to someplace different and let's do something different and not go to that. And so he was taking like four or five executives out and he took them out for dinner. It was like steak and lobster and he paid for their drinks and he said, thank you so much for the night, guys. I'm going to head on in and you're welcome to stay here. The tab is open and then I'm going to call it a night and I'll see you all in the morning. And they're like, all right, cool. Yeah, you have a good night. And then he left and the next day, he said these executives came up to him like the next day and said, thank you so much for not taking us to a strip club. I was dreading that you were going to be one of those guys, like you were going to take us. I'm like, I go on these meetings because I have to for my company and I hate it because I'm married, I've got kids and here I am going to a strip club. I've got daughters. So for you to not take us, thank you. Where do I sign? They were all thanking him for not doing what was expected, what these ideas were of like, this is what businessmen do. And and it just took one guy to say, I'm not going to take y'all there. If that cost me a sale, so what? And it doesn't matter whether or not you're Christian. It's just, the point is his values were, I love my wife more. I love my family more. I respect the people enough to not objectify them and think of them as a commodity in that way. I'm not going to support that industry. So therefore, I'm going to wind and dine these guys, but we're not going there. And if I lose my job, I lose my job. So the guy was really ready to lose the sale, lose his job. And the end result was they loved him for it. And they were like, thank you. And now they go out for that was like a decade ago. But you never know the outcome. But at least you have the reassurance that the decision you made was in alignment with the healthier things in your life that you feel are important to you. You didn't compromise that. That's one thing that they can't take away from a man is his ability to act in integrity with his values. Jerry, this has been a fantastic conversation. If people want to find out more about you, go deeper in your world, where's the best place to go? The podcast is where all things that connect to everything I do is located. 
And how do you find that? That's the question. Beyondtherut.com. There you go. You go to beyondtherut.com. You'll find all my episodes there. If you want to work with me on a business level, do some leadership development, there's a link there to work with me. It'll take you to that other website. And then all my social media stuff is linked there as well. So beyondtherut.com. Sweet. And we'll link that up here in the in the show notes. Jared, my last question to you, and some guests get this. In your opinion, what's the definition of modern masculinity? I would go back to what we were talking about earlier about being the whole person. So I think modern masculinity is about embracing what it means to be human. Our societies will have some things that are masculine and some things that are not. It's having that strength and the courage to say, this is who I am. These are my values. This is what I stand for. And this is how I'm going to serve the people in my life. And it's the willingness to go against these caricatures of what somebody else tells me who I am. Fellas, I want to thank you for sticking around today. If you got some value out of today, we would love and appreciate a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. And, and if you know a guy who needs to hear this, maybe they're in a rut. Maybe you just think they might be in a difficult space. Send them this episode. Let them know you're thinking about them. And go out and get connected with Jerry. We're connected, I think, most on, on LinkedIn, but some other platforms as well. And we appreciate you being part of the tribe, y'all. We'll see you on the next one. Later, fam. If iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another. But if you're a man and you're alone or listening to this, then who sharpens you? What's going on, guys? Ted Thayton here, host of the Modern Man Podcast, also founder of the Noble Knights Mastermind Group. And I'm just out here encouraging you to find your circle. Maybe you're on a personal growth journey and nobody around you understands the new mentality that you're possessing. That's okay. You can find an online community that will pour into you, will navigate your goals and navigate your obstacles, share their experiences, resources, and more. Join the Noble Knights Mastermind Group and try us out for free to tap into a community of men helping each other scale up and reach their goals. Check out themodernmanpodcast.com.